Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we're continuing our short series in the book of Jonah before we move on to the book of Daniel. And here, Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Jeffrey Myers, and Alistair Roberts will be discussing Jonah chapter 2. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Alistair Roberts, and Jeffrey Myers on Jonah chapter 2. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John, Jeff Myers, and Alistair Roberts. Brian Motes is in the background recording everything and be editing it and preparing it for distribution. We're in the middle of a short series on the book of Jonah. Uh, we're, that's part of an embedded in larger series on uh, prophecy. We did an opening episode on the topic of prophetic ministry in general. Uh, and after a few weeks in the book of Jonah, we're going to go on and study through the book of Daniel together. That'll be a longer series. We don't know how long yet, but uh, that's, of course, a much more detailed and complicated prophecy than the book of Jonah. We thought we'd get our feet wet with Jonah, and uh, we've, we've covered the first chapter with Jonah's flight from the Lord and from the Lord's presence uh, and his attempt to escape on the sea. Uh, the Lord hurls a, a storm onto the sea, which arrests his flight and um, brings him back. And this week we're looking at uh, Jonah chapter 2, which is uh, the song of Jonah that he prays from the belly of the fish. And uh, one, one critical comment that comes up and when scholars look at this chapter is, to, is the question of whether this uh, poem actually fits within the context of the book of Jonah. Many have regarded it as a pre-existing uh, psalm that was embedded in the book of Jonah. Uh, there's the, some complain that it doesn't really fit the context of the book of Jonah. It doesn't seem to fit the same storyline the things that Jonah says in the course of the poem that don't seem to fit the way the story works in the narrative part of the book. Uh, Jonah himself, uh, uh, the claim is that Jonah is inconsistent. He's been a rebellious prophet who doesn't want to follow the Lord's direction. He doesn't want to deliver the Lord's word to the Ninevites, but this is a prayer to God, and it's uh, a prayer of sincere thanksgiving. And so the claim is at least that uh, Jonah is an inconsistent character and that uh, this is the, the the psalm must be coming from somewhere else because the psalmist uh, doesn't fit with the character of Jonah that we've uh, that we've been introduced to in chapter one. Uh, we can address some of those issues in a second, but I I wanted to start out by talking about the the way that the poem is embedded structurally within the book of Jonah because there there are a number of things that indicate that it fits into the into the flow of the book, even if you could say that parts of it were um, were taken from elsewhere. Certainly phrases overlap with the book of Psalms. Uh, even if that's the case, you still have indications that the, uh, that the poem is, is neatly situated, neatly embedded within the, within the book of Jonah. Uh, the, the poem itself, uh, it, in the Hebrew text, it actually, uh, chapter 2 actually begins with what in our English versions is verse 17 of chapter 1. That's chapter 2, verse 1 in uh, the Hebrew text. And I think that's important to recognize the framing that's surrounding the poem. You have uh, chapter one in our Bibles ends with the Lord appointed the great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the stomach of the fish for three days and three nights. That's the introduction. And then you have 
Jonah praying to the Lord, uh, and that's uh, chapter R, chapter two, verses one through nine, and then you have uh, the closing, which is uh, in the, the going in the opposite direction of the opening verse. The opening verse is the Lord appoints a fish to swallow, then the Lord commands again. Uh, speaks to the fish, and the fish vomits Jonah out on the dry land. So there's a the um, the fish ingests Jonah at the beginning at the Lord's appointment, and then the Lord then the fish um, vomits out Jonah at the end of the poem. So you have that nice framing that goes around the poem, and then the poem fits into that in its particular structure. Uh, and there are various ways that that poem fits into the within that frame fits into the sequence that's been introduced in chapter one. In chapter one, we've uh, we follow Jonah as he flees from the Lord, but just as importantly, we followed the development of the uh, of the of the sailors on the boat where Jonah is, uh, on which Jonah is, is is fleeing. Those the the Lord the Lord hurls a storm at sea. The sailors are frightened. Then they're very frightened, and then they're very frightened of the Lord, and they end up offering sacrifices after Jonah is thrown into the sea, and the sea calms. Uh, and we have the same kind of sequence with Jonah himself. In chapter two, so Jonah is thrown into the sea in chapter one, and the sea calms, and then the the sailors are rescued. They're safe, and they rejoice in Yahweh. They offer sacrifices to Yahweh, uh, and then chapter two begins, and we have the same kind of sequence going on with Jonah. Uh, Jonah is thrown into the sea. He descends down to the roots of the mountains. He goes into the heart of Sheol. Then he's rescued, and he talks about going to offer sacrifice to the Lord. So you have a, a parallel sequence with the sailors in chapter one and then Jonah himself in chapter two that uh, shows that the, the, the poem is, uh, is uh, structurally linked up with the rest of the book. It's structurally linked up with the narrative portion. Um, one, one last note, uh, a, a couple of numerological notes that I think are interesting. This, this comes from a, a South African scholar named CJ Labuschagne. I don't know if that's how you pronounce his name. That's how that's the only sense I can make of it. Um, but uh, Labuschain has done ex- extremely interesting numerological studies of the Psalms, and he's looked at this poem in Jonah 2, and he's pointed out, for example, that there are 81 words in the, uh, that are spoken by Jonah within his prayer. Uh, that's in chapter 2. And then there are also 81 words spoken by Jonah in the narrative portions of the book surrounding it. So there's a clear numerological link between the poem and the surrounding narrative. And then he also points out that within chapter two, if you include the frame in uh, chapter one, verse 17 and two, verse 10, uh, there, are, there are seven uses of the word of the name Yahweh, uh, which is significant for that chapter, of course. But then that's added to a total of 19 uses of the name Yahweh elsewhere in the book for a total of 26 uses of Yahweh, which is the numerical value of the name Yahweh. So the name Yahweh is used uh, a Yahweh number of times in the course of the book of Jonah. And that you reach that, uh, that number, that, that total, only if you have the seven that are included in chapter two. So those are various, various structural and literary uh, indications that the poem, uh, whatever its ultimate source, you could say, whatever its ultimate source, it's been uh, worked to be part of this uh, narrative. Uh, it certainly is presented as Jonah's own words, and I think it's likely that Jonah composed it, and it's composed as it says uh, in response to the Lord's rescue of him. 
uh, and it, it's it's not a random interpolation into the into the book. It's a it's integrated in various ways into into the story. Do you think that one of the reasons why, um, at least in my reading and some commentators' reasons why the, this uh, psalm, this prayer is rejected, is because um, their view of Jonah and Jonah one seems to be like you know he's just purely bad. He's just awful. Um, there's no complexity in the Jonah character here. I mean, as we went through this, we noted that Jonah was a faithful prophet, and his fleeing is not just some kind of carnal uh, escape from obedience, but it has to do for his love for the people and his his knowledge of what Yahweh is about to do with Nineveh, or may do, uh, if um, northern Israel continues on the same path. So it, it's not surprising to me, anyway, that when Jonah is judged by Yahweh, that he retreats back to his knowledge of the Psalms um, and the form of the Psalms, the Davidic Psalms, and composes or prays a psalm exactly like this. He's he's not he's not purely unfaithful. He's a compromised and complex prophet. Um, and you know, just on a psychological level, even at least that makes sense to me. I think that's part of a more general issue, isn't it, Jeff? That people who um, would like to decompose scriptures into different sources often just don't allow for the complexity of characters and the psychological states of people. And so when someone acts in a, a strange way or out of character way or, or in some unexpected manner, the, the tendency is to always say, oh, this was some later interpolation from elsewhere rather than try and think of how that might reflect in reality unusual behavior or, or, or a complex character or something like that one of the interesting things in uh, chapter two is the and this is a, again one of the reasons why people suggest it's an interpolation is the apparent discrepancy between uh, the content of the psalm which is uh, primarily a, a psalm of thanksgiving for a deliverance uh, and the setting in which it's given. So uh, Jonah doesn't seem to be delivered yet. It said that uh, in uh, 2.1 that he's praying from the stomach of the fish, and yet instead of being a psalm of distress or lament, it's, um, it's primarily a song of God's answer to prayer. Any, thought, any thoughts on that? What's the, how do you resolve that apparent discrepancy between setting and content i'm not entirely sure but while we're at it we could throw in the extra issue that there doesn't seem to be a great deal of repentance on jonah's behalf there's no particular sorrow that he's run away from the lord the next exchange he has with the lord in chapter four is uh prickly and there's more friction there than there is in even in chapter two or in anything he does or says in chapter one so yeah the the lack of repentance is an interesting phenomenon too Maybe I could ask Jeff a question. Jeff, you mentioned that part of Jonah's motive could be for the good of his people in some way. Is, is that something you could spell out in a bit more, bit more detail? Um, he didn't want to see his people destroyed by Nineveh, uh, the rising power, uh, and especially their conversion and um, gaining more power, gaining more strength. Um, so I, I think, I think we talked about this already, that Jonah, uh, thinking about the Lord's warnings um, to his people all the way back in Deuteronomy 32, and of course, 
Deuteronomy um, 27:28, worried that this was going to be the the people the people of foreign lips who would come and destroy um, his people. I, I think that's that's one of the motives for him leaving is he just doesn't want to be part of that. Um, that's at least plausible to me, and seems like um, it seems like it fits with the context of the book and the storyline in the book of Jonah. Right. My grandkids were telling me this morning about a a cartoon version of the book of Jonah where Jonah is a mouse and he's told to go and uh, prophesy in Cat City. Uh, and of course, he doesn't want Cat City to be saved. He wants Cat City to be destroyed. Uh, but he, you know, the story goes on. He's so he's he's resentful when when the when the Lord doesn't destroy Cat City. That's that's the kind of thing you're talking about, right, Jeff? That yeah, uh, it'd be better for Israel if Assyria were not spared. Yeah, no. yeah. So on the, on that view, we presumably have to say that Jonah knew or had some sense that his message could be responded to, and then could be um, sort of and could result in good for Nineveh, um, which I guess is, is possible. It certainly seems to be what he suggests in chapter four, that um, it was precisely because he knew that the Lord is gracious, merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster, that he wanted to flee from his mission. Right. Yeah. Oh, back to your question, Peter. Uh, yeah. uh, the content of Jonah's prayer still has a great deal that fits with his being cast into the sea, you know, into the deep, verse 3, the heart of the seas, the flood, the waves. Even the belly of Sheol uh, is connected, of course, with the belly of the fish. And it seems to me that, that Jonah, having been cast over the side of the ship by the Gentile sailors pretty much figured he was dead. Well, and then he found himself actually alive and breathing in the belly of the fish. So it doesn't seem to me, and then it doesn't seem to me like it's incongruous to think that he would give thanks for that and also express the hope as he does also in this song that he would one day uh, be back into the, the, uh, into the holy temple, uh, whatever that refers to at this point, that he would be able to see uh, God's holy temple once again. Yeah. So in that in that reading, the being in the belly of the fish is not part of the distress, but that's actually the rescue. Yes. That the Lord has actually that is Lord's already performed. And then I think we we've talked about the political kind of the political allegory that's going on here. Uh, Jonah is a representative Israelite. The sea is the sea of Gentiles, and Jonah is cast into the midst of that. But instead of simply drowning in the sea of Gentiles, this uh, Israelite prophet who represents the people is rescued by a great um, a great fish. There's a monster within the sea of Gentiles that is going to gobble up Israel. But that's actually a rescue operation um, that um, Nineveh is providing. Uh, in this case, Nineveh and Assyria are going to provide some kind of protection from the rest of the dangers that would be uh, that would be threatening Israel uh, out in the Gentile Sea. Another thing that comes to my mind is the extent to which the book of Jonah is set in Genesis chapter 1. It's a world of the most elementary things. It's the sea and the dry land. It's the sea monsters. It's the beasts 
and the cattle. It's the um, plants that are growing up and it's the man in the midst of it and the whole creation thrown into turmoil, the winds of the Lord coming, the blighting wind in chapter four, the um, tempestuous wind in chapter one, and the way that when the whole of creation is thrown into tumult, how the Lord can protect his people. And that's, on the one level, that's the um, personal situation of the prophet. On another level, it's the political situation of the nation that he represents and on yet another level it's how human beings relate to god who is the creator and providential ruler of the creation in a world which in any respect is thrown into turmoil it's natural forces being under his control that's a great point there are there are certain things in the in the psalm that uh, highlight that the use of the use of the hebrew word to home the deep, the great deep in verse five engulfs him. That's, that goes back to the uh, first two verses of uh, Genesis uh, when the spirit is hovering over the deep, over the deep, he goes down to the roots of the mountains. That's not a phrase in Genesis, but it, you know, it suggests going down to the very bases. You have these cosmological, uh, these cosmological uh, indications, uh, as you said, of land and sea, but also a kind of cosmic mountain whose roots are, at the bottom of the sea, but who sticks up and connects to heaven. Uh, so yeah, I think that's right that you have this uh, this creation symbolism that runs through the whole uh, through the whole book, but particularly in this poem. What about the question that James raised about the lack of repentance? I I think that's accurate. Jonah doesn't express any regret. He's he's joyful when the Lord rescues him, but the Lord rescues him in spite of his um, defiance. There's a certain kind of repentance in the following chapter when. Uh, after being vomited out onto the dry land, he goes to Nineveh. But then in the sequel, you realize that he's still kind of hoping that Nineveh won't listen uh, and that uh, he'll still be able to see Nineveh judged. So uh, how, what, do you, what do you make of the, is, is there an implied repentance or is, this, uh, is something else going on where the Lord is intervening to rescue an impenitent prophet? There seems to be an implied repentance in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I memorialized Yahweh. My prayer came up to you in your holy temple. Um, that's kind of how he concludes this uh, poetic prayer, so that when he's thrown into the, I mean, I'm reading that uh, to be something like this. When he's thrown into the sea, he asks Yahweh to deliver him. Uh, he memorializes Yahweh. That's the covenant name. Remember your promises. Remember your, remember me. I'm one of your people, um, and that's that's kind of a, or at least it implies some sort of turn t- back toward Yahweh, um, and um, so anyway, that's that's the way I've read verse seven. The prayer seems to be a response to a previous prayer. Um, and the answer to it, he called out to the Lord, and he was answered. And then this is the response to that answer. So <laughs> perhaps it's a response to a prayer in which there was confession of sin, repentance, and calling for deliverance. And here, I think also it it frames the swallowing of the fish as part of the Lord's salvation. And I think that's important for the book more generally. It 
if there is the political allegory going on here, and I'm quite certain there is, there is an analogy between the fish and the Assyrians and Nineveh, um, the three-day journey round Nineveh, through Nineveh corresponds with the three days in the big fish. There's going to be a casting into the deep, but the Lord can prepare a deep uh, fish within the deep, and he can prepare Assyria to swallow up his people as a form of preservation. And so that thanks to the Lord for his salvation helps us to see something about what Assyria could be, that Nineveh could actually be a form of salvation, not just a judgment or destruction. Yeah, that aspect of swallowing fits with an exile-like event, doesn't it? I think probably last week we were talking about how the growing rage and tumult of the nations picture in some way just the escalation of the the turmoil of the world as Israel goes further and further um, afield. And then when the exile does happen, there, there is silence. Um, Jeremiah particularly emphasizes the silence of the land the way voices aren't heard there and the land gets its sabbath rest and then in Zechariah when the the horses go out they say the earth is is at rest there's this kind of um stillness to the to the whole thing and then at the conclusion of Jeremiah um when it talks about Nebuchadnezzar there he is said to um swallow up um Israel and he's referred to as a um a tanin which isn't exactly the same as a as a whale, but is some sort of sea sea creature. So the the, the image seems to fit an exile-like event. That I think is supported further by the emphasis upon being cut off from the temple and praying towards the temple from a situation of um, of removal from it. Something we could think about is the extent to which the complexity in Jonah's prayer and and let's call it the apparent lack of repentance, could be meant to symbolise a slight complexity or even hard-heartedness in in terms of Israel during the exile. I don't know particularly your view of things, but I find the return of Israel quite difficult in some senses because you clearly have faithful Israelites in exile like Daniel who prays and repents. And yeah, at the same time, when Israel do come back to the land, they are very soon into the same old sins, particularly in Nehemiah uh, and Ezra. It, it is sort of straight back into the, the very same intermarrying, which caused so many problems in, in the first place. And I wonder if some of that complexity as to whether there is or isn't repentance is, is meant to be reflected in, in Jonah 2 here. To maybe make that point keener, this is uh, an a northern prophet. This is a prophet from Israel, not Judah. And were, whereas there were brief periods of faithfulness in Judah, we can think about maybe um, Josiah and his reforms and some of the things under Hezekiah. In this case, you're dealing with someone who's ministering during the reign of Jeroboam II. This is not a good king or a good nation. And the fate of Israel seems to be more grim than the fate of Judah. Judah is promised more of a restoration in Ezekiel and Jeremiah than the Northern Kingdom is. And so I think maybe we could read this in terms of the other themes of the book concerning the Lord's declaration of judgment and the possibility of the Lord relenting from judgment. 
that this is a promise that's held out to a nation that is rebellious. And it's an open question whether they will avail themselves of the Lord's grace. One of the specific things which Jonah says that I was interested in was in verse 8, where we have this statement that those who pay regard to vain idols or, or something of that nature forsake their hope of, of steadfast love. And I don't know about you, this sounds to me like Jonah is, is very much saying that, I don't know, the Ninevites don't deserve any kind of um, forgiveness, that kind of... Um, you know, the, the idea of the steadfast love is something which Jonah explicitly um, associates with the Lord in his uh, citation of Exodus 34, where he talks about how the Lord is, is merciful and, and, and faithful to forgive and, and, and so forth. And um, it strikes me that in verse 8, Jonah is, is kind of wanting to foreclose repentance and, and, and the Gentiles receiving mercy. Uh, that statement, of course, cuts both ways, right, James? I mean, that's <clears throat> uh, others have pointed out that there's some references, uh, particularly this one, to Deuteronomy 32 and the uh, Song of Moses. Um, and so this might refer, of course, to Nineveh, uh, but also to Israel, especially northern Israel. Um, so, yeah. Um, but, of course, when we get to Jonah 3, the Ninevites are going to turn away from their vain idols. Uh, and so they, they're, they're repentant, um, which is, I think, one of the things that bugs Jonah is because they're repentant. He, he's been proclaiming in northern Israel for many, many, many years, and nobody has shown much repentance. But now the Ninevites, after three days— uh, are all in for Yahweh. Um, it's um, so. I, again, I, I just wonder if this just cuts both ways. Uh, I'm not sure who he's referring to there in verse eight. Could be his own people. Could be Nineveh. Right. And it does seem as if idolaters within the Book of Jonah are quite prepared to turn. Um, we mm-hmm. see it in the case of the the men, the sailors in the preceding chapter, who offer a sacrifice to the Lord and make vows, and then here. Um, Jonah maybe I think there is some sort of repentance that occurs and then in the next chapter we'll have Nineveh repenting and so Israel has all these examples of people repenting the prophet who's fleeing from the Lord the uh, pagan sailors and then the Ninevites themselves and will they repent it seems as if they are slightly more incalcitrant which which may go a long way too for explaining Jonah's despondency at the end. Um, I mean, after all, he's been ministering in Israel, like I said, for many years, but nothing. And now the Ninevites uh, turn towards Yahweh. um, And it, you know, you got to, I think it's, again, he's a complex figure. You got to be able to enter into his, his despair, his, uh, frustration, and not just simply condemn him for being, you know, a simplistic, pharisaical dolt. The language Jonah uses here is the language of, of death all through here. It's, it's uh, whether he literally died or not, it's probably not the case, but surely 
in every other sense, symbolically, figuratively, metaphorically. Uh, he, he is not just in the belly of the fish, he's in the belly of Sheol. Um, and, and so he's in a deep sleep. He's down to the roots of the mountain. He's, uh, he's, uh, it's a death-like experience for him. Uh, so it becomes, at least on that simple level, appropriate metaphor, appropriate prophecy of Jesus. We could also lump into that the fact that the the anger of the sea grows still as he's sort of cast into the um, uh, the tomb, stroke the sea, mm-hmm. and also Jesus himself tells us that Jonah was a sign, a sign to Israel. I think we've talked about this already. Uh, his experience is going to be, or supposed to be, a prophetic warning um, to Israel. And so Jesus also is a sign to contemporary uh, Jews of his day um, in, in, in the Jonah sense, um, so that they're supposed to see what happens to him and learn from, learn from that. I wonder whether we're supposed to see the story of Noah and the ark behind the story of Jonah at this point. Jonah has been in the deep, and he's Jonah, he's the dove, that's what his name means. He's looking for rescue from um, a world that's been cast back into chaos. And he is cast up onto the dry land. Jonah, the original Jonah, the dove, was searching for dry land um, sent out by Noah um, to find some sort of rest or to bring back something. And in some ways, Jonah the prophet is also searching for dry land. He's searching for a place in the midst of a world that's thrown into the deep again. Um, Israel thrown into exile among the nations. He's looking for somewhere that is dry land. And being cast up onto dry land is an answer to that prayer. And it's also something that should draw our mind back to that earlier story. Just to go back slightly to Jeff's point about how um there is a an implicit warning in what's going on here with jonah um in all these situations so um like you mentioned alistair the flood or whatever we take there are people who are are saved but there are also people who are, are left behind and and so there is there is a warning on some group of people and i'm not sure if we covered this last time around but chapter one of jonah seems to have a number of parallels with Paul's final journey in the book of Acts insofar as there is just this increasingly hostile sea which is threatening to destroy the ship and almost the more the sailors and and the like sort of fight against it um, as they do in chapter one the more hostile um, it becomes and even various bits of cargo are are sort of thrown thrown overboard and um, What's going on there does seem to have that sort of warning function in, in the book of Acts, um, that there is salvation going to a, a Gentile world and there, there are going to be people left behind. Um, that is all set against the backdrop of Paul's journey where he is almost sort of picked up by the Roman, uh, by this you know highly armed Roman guard and sort of taken away from Israel um, under cover of darkness to um, ultimately to Rome. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. 
For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.